Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Today, I get to have Christopher Nunez, and yours is a particularly interesting um, interview that came out of nowhere that you reached out to me and I did not know people like you exist. And it was, I was so intrigued by what you're up to and that you're not coming from the same storyline that a lot of us are from working in Vegas or Paris, but you're coming at this with a, a curiosity that is not from doing the show, but what you've actually like been researching and learning about. Can you tell a little bit of just, you know, who you are, what you're doing now, but then also what even connected you to this world? Sure. Um, my name is Christopher Nunez. I'm a, I'm a director, um, company, ma company manager, um, uh, um, producer. Uh, I just finished grad school. Part of my, um, uh, I was going there for directing. I was at Florida State University. And part of my time there, uh, I wanted to develop a, a musical. And so I, was, I have always been fascinated by Madame Bluebell. I know that's a little strange. I'm 37 years old and I never, I'm not a dancer, never was in any of her shows or associated with any of them, but I spent 11 years in Las Vegas. And one of the first shows I saw in Las Vegas was Jubilee. And I became fascinated with that style of entertainment and, um, and the fact that it's sort of gone. It's very sad. Um, you know, not just those shows, but that sort of genre only really exists in a few shows in Paris right now. And, um, you know, I saw the show many times over the years while I lived in Las Vegas. I was working as a uh, company manager and assistant producer for a company called Bass Entertainment. And we did um, Phantom of the Opera and Rock of Ages and Magic Mike Live and all kinds of shows, everything from ventriloquists to magicians to uh, Broadway style shows. And so I was sort of in the business there. And, um, and I was always just fascinated with the, the, the show. And, and, um, and as I got more into it and I started reading, you know, Bluebell's uh, biography written by George Perry, and I started reading books about that, um, the style of entertainment. And, um, you know, as an aspiring director, you know, I, um, I was fascinated with Don Arden and the fact that there's almost no history on him. You know, and some of his contemporaries like, you know, Bob Fosse, some of the Broadway contemporaries that were um, doing work in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s are very well known. And there's multiple books about them and biographies and all this stuff. But there's very little known about this creative team of Bluebell and Arden that worked together from the 1960s on and almost every show together and really created and solidified this format, this style that was so incredibly successful. I think people forget that, you know, if you compare jubilee and hello hollywood hello and hallelujah hollywood to the most successful broadway shows and i know because i worked on phantom of the opera for a long time that's been running for 35 years more people saw these shows than most of the shows on broadway and how does this genre just go away so um yeah i, I learned a lot about her life and um and so uh, the project was i'm not a writer i'm a director and a producer type and so I started thinking about like, well, what is the story about? And, and how can I sort of do the groundwork, lay the groundwork for somebody who might write this? Um, I would love to have somebody um, join the creative team that, that's a, a really good playwright that can really write, write this and then find songwriters that can put pen to paper and write some incredible music to it. And really not just do a, a traditional music theater musical, but do it in the style of a Bluebell art and show, you know? And there's all those elements in her lifetime. For instance, you know, in her lifetime, 
her and Arden escaped an incredibly dangerous fire, one of the deadliest fires in American history at the MGM Grand Hotel that killed, I think, 80-something people. Um, that's the Arden disaster sequence. That's the Titanic. That's the Samson and Delilah moment in her life. You know, um, a lot of people don't know her incredible history during World War II. I mean, her husband was Jewish. She was a, the band leader at the Folie Berger. Um, and he, um, he was um, taken to a concentration camp. She was also interred in an internment camp for several weeks while she was pregnant with her first child. Uh, he escaped from the concentration camp, um, then came back to Paris. She hid him in a secret apartment in the city. At the height of the war, when um, the city of Paris is being occupied by the Nazis, um, all of these shows that she's a part of at the time were being performed for a mixed audience of, of you know, native French people. Um, and uh, Nazi soldiers, because they were they had to. The 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 um, the Nazi um, leaders were told Paul Duval, who who ran the Fies Berger, you must perform your show because that's what our soldiers want to do while they're in Paris. They want to see the famous sights, and and the Fies Berger was was a landmark, was, was legendary at the time, you know. And then after all of that heartbreak and pe seeing people die in her in, in, during that time period. She has her most successful years in the 1950s, 60s, and really brings the Bluebell brand around the world. You know, at one point, I think by the end of her book, she says that there were 14,000 Bluebells that danced in various shows all around the world. And this is in the, in the early 80s. I don't know what that number is now, but it, it's got to be um, much higher, you know, so um, really an incredible legacy. Um, so that's, that's a little about me and why I'm fascinated. You can tell I'm excited because there's so few people that know about this history and I'm excited with getting it out there because it, it, it just doesn't exist in a lot of places. When I know that the people that listen to this, we all have our little tiny piece of Bluebell and then when we share them, it kind of, we're putting a through line, but you have a much clearer through line. Because I think the interviews, like the personal accounts of her, of how she treated her dancers and you'll, as you listen to the podcast, you'll hear just really beautiful stories of when things were happening that were, a little bit risky for the girls of how Bluebell would step in and protect or take care of or speak up for. But to hear the history, this is the part I've read the, what Perry, I forgot the first name. George Perry. George Perry. And it is, it's more, it's very cut and dry, mm -hmm. but it's the personal stories I can see in a musical that bring that to life. And I love how the, the format, because that is something like you have this scene that you get whisked away if it's space or Samson Delilah and then you have an act and then you the curtain opens and you're somewhere else but it's it's a good long section so you get to stay somewhere long enough where I've been in review shows like we're in the 50s 60s 70s you're just like you know blasting through the decades and there's really not any anywhere to land long enough to really feel it and I think that the spectacle of those shows was so great but also when it's done we're done with that and now you're going to go somewhere else. So I'm just curious, if even if you're putting this show together, those L, any other elements, like I know we've talked about the glamour that's no longer here. It's, it was a magical era. Well, and really her story is really a love letter to the showgirl. I mean, and really nobody, not, it's not that they, the showgirl didn't exist before Bluebell and Arden, but they really perfected it. And she, was, she really should be credited with really the invention of, of what we think of as the whether you, you, you know, you call it the French showgirl, the Las Vegas showgirl, I think they're synonymous, but the idea of the, the very tall, the ex exaggerating the proportions of the body through costume, making the legs extra long, um, the, the big headdresses, and then the style of movement, you know, the, what are they, I think they called it the Arden walk, right? 
Um, but all of the all of that, and then specifically when it comes to movement in the show, it was really the, sort of the MTV of its day. And what I mean by that is the way that she she and, and Arden moved people on stage is um, it doesn't did not exist in the other shows that existed before they got together. Um, and if you look at the old Folly Bergier shows or um, a, a lot of the stuff that's on YouTube now, you can really see what their contribution of the art form was. It was very fast moving, um, lots of movement, everything moved, the costumes moved, the sets were constantly moving, the lighting was constantly moving. They really kept the eye sort of moving around and sort of dazzled. And it, it, um, I don't know anybody else, you know, even traditional theater directors that really mastered that movement so much. I mean, he did these cinematic movements with lines of dancers, like um, washing the stage with a group of dancers. And then as soon as they moved away, they revealed something new, you know? Or, you know, we, we talked about earlier in the pre-interview about specifically about how um, the storytelling was really what they were tasked with. You know, when they created these shows, both in Paris and, and specifically in Las Vegas, when they were tasked with creating these style of shows, their audience was mostly international tourists, or at least a large majority of them were. You know, and, and even in the last days of Jubilee, they had a huge uh, uh, Asian market that would go see those shows and really didn't speak a word of English. And so how do you tell the story of Samson and Delilah with almost no words, you know? There, there were some lyrics to the songs and stuff, but you didn't need to hear that. You knew it all through the movement. You know, and in traditional theater directing, you call that, all that movement supported the dramatic action of what they were doing. So the, this biblical story of Samson and Delilah, you can track the characters very easily throughout the, the play. You know what's happening. You know that they're at a banquet. You know that they're being performed for. You know that she's cutting his hair. Everything's very clear, even on a stage the size of the football field where there's a million things going on. So um, yeah, it, it really was, everything was about the storytelling. You know, even in the big staircase finale numbers, there's a story. There's the Ziegfeld Bride that comes out. Then we open up and we see uh, um, the story of jewels coming down this star-studded staircase and diamonds and pearls and all these things. So everything had a, a conceptual idea to it, a story, and then it moved rapidly. There was no waiting. There's no boring parts in an, in an Arden Bluebell show. Whereas if you look at tapes of all those other shows, there was some snoozy, snoozy parts, you know? You kind of <laughs> did. There was a point where you went to the bathroom. You know, and I think in a, in a Bluebell show, even at the end where the, those music, that music wasn't contemporary, you were still dazzled enough where like, I can't look away because there's so much to see and I'm gonna miss it, you know? And no matter how many times you saw it, you always discovered something new. There was always something that was in the corner or a set piece or something that was um, spe a specific detail that, um, that you didn't wanna miss, you know? When you talked about the golden era of the mus movie musicals, and how it's not the formula, but it is in there. Like even how the show opens with something like that and closes. Do you want to, I also want to tag in there because when you were in Vegas, were you already going towards being a director or is that how your brain thinks? No, you know, I always kind of knew in the back of my head I wanted to direct. And, you know, working on Phantom of the Opera, we, our production was called Phantom of Las Vegas Spectacular. Um, it was directed by Hal Prince, who, you know, is a Kennedy Center honoree and a 22-time Tony Award winner. He would come and brush up the show every now and then. And I'd get to sit as a young person and watch him. And I was actually lucky enough that his office wrote a recommendation for me for graduate school later on. But um, uh, you saw like a great director working. And, you know, I had always thought I, was, I wanted to produce. And I was, uh, at one point, I was designing scenery and things like that. And I, I really, um, it wasn't until I saw a director like Hal Prince 
that I understood like, well, I, and he really was a director producer, meaning that like, it was about the team that he assembled, you know, and it was about the visual. He really understood the visual. That's why his shows I think are so successful to this day. And again, he has something in common with Don Arden in that, you know, you look at those shows like Phantom and, um, and his big shows that were super successful. And if you look at Phantom, you can put that show on mute and you understand everything that's happening because of the movement, because of the pictures that he painted, just like Arden. Ooh. And Anyway, I forgot your first question. <laughs> oh, just about the MGM musical, because I'm thinking like the things that you're saying, like I saw the show before I went in it, but I was, I'd never seen anything like that. I saw the Lido de Paris at the Stardust before I saw um, Hello Hollywood, but there's so many things to look at, but I'm also watching so much of the choreography and the dance. But I think a lot of dancers, we look at that. And just, like, when you have that, that point of view, of a, a director in the making and now a director, like how you see the big picture and how, why and how things work. I think that was really fascinating to me to see what you're even seeing with Bluebell's life as a musical. Like you're, you see, you know, how segments go together and how there's a rise and a fall and the disaster scene. Like, huh, I've never looked, think, thought to look at a show that way. Well, in every single one of, his, of Arden's shows had some sort of disaster sequence. Even the, the Lido shows in Paris and, and in, in Las Vegas had, um, and in, in fact, he was then later copied and other people started to do the same. Um, you know, I think it was something, you know, that it's also the era of those movies like Earthquake and all those disaster movies. But it was also, uh, you know, a story that you can tell succinctly in however long those acts were um, and visually, you know, uh, and... And, you know, in, in Samson and I, there's, an, there's a reason why people are half-dressed, you know, in, in those costumes. Uh, so it was, it was something that, that, um, that translated well. And, you know, what's more uh, universal than a biblical tale or the story of the Titanic, which everyone, even before the, you know, the 90s movie, everyone knows that story. You know, you learn that in, in, in grade school. So, um, oh, so, so to, to answer your question about the MGM musicals, you know, I grew up watching those, those all the, you know, Singing in the Rain and all those movies on, on TV, I'm a huge fan of them, uh, especially as a lover of theater. And if you look at all of the shows, even the, the Paris shows at the Lido, there was always some tribute to the classic Hollywood musical. You know, and I'm sure, you know, I, I don't know because there's no book about Don Arden, and, um, but he, he must have been obsessed with those, those classic um, golden age musicals because there's elements of them throughout his shows. I mean, every show has a Fred and Ginger moment. Every, every show has a top hat moment. You know, um, every show has, uh, you know, uh, the, the finale Ziegfeld number, which is a, a classic MGM musical uh, moment, you know? So he really knew his history of entertainment. He really knew about vaudeville. He knew about um, burlesque. He knew about the, the MGM musicals. He knew about, um, um, you know, the Ziegfeld Follies. He understood all of that. And, and was inspired by all of it. And, and so, was, so was Bluebell. You know, that's actually the thing that's been most fascinating about the research is um, the fact that these two, you know, she found Arden after the war. They started working together when she moved over to the Lido after the war, uh, I think in the late 50s. It might, might have been sooner. But they, once they met, they never did shows apart from each other. They were always a team together. And in fact, most of the pictures you find in their archives that are at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, are of them together, having dinner, uh, hanging out, talking, smoking cigarettes. So there's very few pictures of her husband. It's mostly pictures of her and Don. So that relationship, that friendship, they really understood each other and trusted each other and created some of these incredible shows that, God, 
30-year runs, 10-year runs. I mean, shows didn't run that long in those days. And the fact that those shows ran that long, you know, even the, the Lido shows were meant to last two, three, four, five years. They run 10 years, 15 years, his shows. So, um, you know, and they're, it's commercial entertainment. It's all about getting butts and seats and selling tickets. So the fact that he was able to do that, um, I don't think he, they, he gets the credit. And I don't think she gets the credit either for really creating that idea of glamour, that veneer, that, that um, all that, that polish that the shows had. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you were living in Las Vegas, how many times do you think you saw Jubilee? And I'm curious, as you watch it, do you start to see different things the more you see it? Because the first time you can just be so dazzled that <laughs> you just can hardly take it in. But the more you see it, and I guess I'm just thinking of, again, that director's point of view, when that starts to like come out in you and what you start to see. And yeah, like if, the more you see it, what do you notice? Well, I probably saw it like 14 or 15 times, Jubilee. And I've seen also, I've had the pleasure of going to, to the archives at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas and seeing tapes of the original Jubilee before the changes they made in the 90s. And also um, I've seen, uh, we're lucky that uh, Hello Hollywood, Hello and Hallelujah Hollywood, they um, recorded them for HBO. And so those recordings exist. And I don't think it's the full show, but it's 90% of it. And um, so you, you could go in and really look at them in detail and see what they were. Um, yeah, I saw it. I saw it a lot of times, and, and I would look at it with different intent every time, and sort of like analyze different moments. You know, it was really clear what was original and what had been tampered with. Really? What, you know, how did like, you notice that? For instance, the end of the Titanic act, uh, they skip to um, the tiller line, uh, where they're all in the black, uh, red, white. Um, sorry, the red, white, and blue sort of um, rocket style sequence or whatever. That to me always rang as strange because there's, it skips somehow. And then watching the original videos, I learned, oh, there's a whole World War II sequence that was cut from the show where there was, um, uh, um, there was uh, planes that went overhead and uh, they sang some of the kind of war songs. And I think, I'm assuming that maybe those songs were sort of, had by, by, at a certain point become passe it was like songs like Over Here and sort of those rah, rah, rah America songs. That section was cut because it always wow. seems strange to me that the Titanic sings, we black out, and then all of a sudden lights come up and we're doing this Yankee Doodle Dandy number. Right. It was jarring and his shows were never jarring. Everything flowed from one scene to the next very specifically and it was very thought out. So there was elements that you can, as a director, you look at and you see, okay, that was something else and that was changed later and I can tell that they didn't dedicate as much maybe money towards it because the costumes weren't elaborate in that section or the set was, was maybe uh, a little simpler than the rest of the show. You mm. know, parts of the first act, the, the, um, in Jubilee always um, um, uh, had strange transitions because that was messed with the most, that act, you know? So you can clearly see where those changes were made. And then later on as the show, you know, when they did the massive change that when um, Frank Gatson Jr. came in and redid the show, that really was a different show. I, you know, it was really not in keeping with the Don Arden Bluebell style of show. You know, um, I think it was something else. I didn't see it and I just, I didn't hear good things before it happened. <laughs> and I think cause it were, that was a lot of the people I was hearing from that people had a very, you know, sweet spot for what it was. So if, to change anything 
but like, well, maybe if we change it and make it current, it will, can still be there. But I think I'm curious what you think of what the mistakes were made of what maybe they went too far or what they took away that, that made it not a Don Arden Bluebell show anymore. You know, I think, um, even, I think Don Arden was quoted, I, I read it somewhere in an interview where he said, these shows were never meant to run this long. Meaning that they, they were thrilled that Hollywood ran that long and they thought, oh, well, maybe Jubilee will run eight, 10 years, you know, not 35 years. So by the time we get to when I saw the show, uh, the music wasn't popular music anymore. And so I understand the casinos want to sort of update the show, but you start to mess with the jigsaw puzzle that they created and uh, everything is so thought out. When you think of the scene changes alone in a section like Titanic or the costume changes, how the lines of dancers would exit and enter, everything was, he really mapped out his shows in advance. You know, you have to when you have a hundred plus cast members on stage, you have to really do that work or else you'd be rehearsing for, you know, 20 weeks, which you Perfect. can't afford to do even in, in, a, in a spectacle like Jubilee. So you start to mess with that, you start to take it apart. Also, there's a certain style of dance that those costumes and that sort of, um, that they go with. And it's, it's a really elegant, it's, it's in keeping with those MGM musicals, which is everything has an elegance to it. It's, it's um, that doesn't exist anymore. That's not in popular music, you know? Like everyone's wearing tuxedos in Jubilee. You know, everyone's wearing, it's, and it's not just tuxedos, it's tails with a top hat and a cane because that's the formality of the show. And there's also, I think people, I don't think they really understood when they did that shift, the tone of the show. I think the tone of the show is very earnest and beautiful and elegant. And it's also, there's a facade that the audience never gets close to. You know, mm. it's sort of, there, there's a, um, I'm trying to put it in terms, in more simple terms, but it, it, there's almost, it, the show is playing hard to get. Oh, <laughs> you know, yes. And okay, I'm that's... Sure I was going to say, you might be able to speak to like what was directed to the dancers when they rehearsed the show on how they um, got that across the footlights, you know? That's so interesting because hard to get, because I was, I was telling you when I work with dancers now, like when we do the showgirl walks, they're sweating. It's hard. They all think it's going to be easy. And then we'll bring out, I have some headpieces, nothing close to Don Arden, but that's hard enough. And then we talk about the persona and a lot of them want to do sexy face. Right. Or like snobby, like, you know, I'm so amazing. You can't touch me. But I've not found the words except for what you just said, hard to get. Because I, yeah. I say you're wearing this amazing costume. And you're like, I'm so, I, you know, you're so lucky to get to see me. But it, mm -hmm. it can't come across as um, snobby. There right. is something, it's almost attainable, but you can't get it. But it's so beautiful. You want it, but you also know you can't have it. <laughs> Right. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of glamour that's untouchable, you know, yeah. and all the tricks that Bob Mackie and Pete Menefee and all the, all the lighting and everything, it gave you that illusion of like this beauty that was beyond, just like the MGM musicals, you know, and I don't think they quite understood that. The show, be, it, was, um, it was sort of a modern style of pop where they're sort of courting you to come with them and they're sort of dancing at you. And... Um, you know, the, the, also the, the Bluebell art and style was sort of aloof and sort of, uh, it, it's, it's, it sounds so specific. And like, I don't know if you, if you saw the show once as an audience member, you'd even notice it, but they courted that. I mean, even little things. 
And I don't know if this is, maybe I remember this in my imagination, and it's not quite true, but that very end of the show at Jubilee, when that curtain comes down, I think it was similar in all, in all of his American shows, that, you know, that beautiful Austrian curtain would come down and the last point would have that last principal dancer, that last moment. And she did something almost every time with her eyelashes where she would look down and look up again. And I don't know if that was directed, but it was like that last kind of wink of like, you're seeing the last bit of beauty and we're closing this curtain and you need to go home. <laughs> oh my God, that gave me chills. That yeah. gave me chills. It does, it oh. gives you chills. It's it, even watching um, video of it, it's really, you're, they're opening the window. That proscenium is a window into another world. And I don't know if anyone ever has done that since, you know? And so, I, I, like I said, I don't think he gets the credit and I don't think she gets the credit either for, for um, creating that style. And unfortunately it's gone now, you know? And even the shows that were sort of tributes to it, shows like um, the Palm Springs Follies, which was sort of at least, certainly like a, a tip of the hat to that style of show or maybe shows that you might not think were sort of in the Jubilee style, but um, I remember going to San Francisco and seeing um, Beach, Beach Blanket Babylon, which was again, a comedy and, and, uh, um, and silly fun, but it also had that aesthetic. It had the camp aesthetic that was, they were really kind of be, doing the campy version of what Jubilee did with the, all the big costumes and everything. That just closed last year. Palm Spring Follies has been gone for a long time. So really there's no other place in America that I know of, correct me if I'm wrong, that really is doing that style of entertainment. Um, so I, I, you know, um, I, I'm interested in, in, in bringing it back. And I don't think you can really bring it back in the way that it was. I don't right. think it has the money to do that. And I think people, audiences now, um, they, I think they want something else. You know, they want live singing and all this kind of stuff, or at least the illusion of it, you know? Um, so I, I think the way to do it is to really tell the story of these people, which, and I think Bluebell and, you know, Arden's part of that, but Bluebell really had a fascinating life. You know, it, it was actually one of the first things she said when she, when her biographer interviewed her was, uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm a character. I've had a fascinating life. I'm misquoting her, but that's I think that you, you nailed it and what the intent was there's something that like you were even talking about the eyelash thing mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of art form that wants to make a nod they we know how to imitate but we don't know the understory like I think the way you're even approaching this if you don't know the why or who these people are you can look at that girl and imitate it but it's not the same as embodying it right and because I know when I went in the show I'm learning like like the big Heatway, which was like kind of Afro-Caribbean. It was really, that was probably the most dancey and then our space disco. So you learn those, but then the walking, I think I had just as much time like trying to get that stage is ginormous of walking right. elegantly and you do it over and over and over again and you learn it, but then it's by watching, like there were girls that I would just, my eyes would go to that really were performers. So when I'm learning the show and then you go out and you watch it, you, your eye goes to those people and you can't, have someone teach you that and you could try to imitate it, but it's not the same as like, there is something intriguing underneath it. They're not just like, here's my, there's something deeper, a, a knowing that mm -hmm. you get to be a part of. And I think that, you know, I wonder like all of us learned the show, we were all thrown into it so fast. If you were rehearsing the beginning of Jubilee, that original cast, or if you come in as a replacement, you have so much time and they basically just throw you on stage and you know what, how to watch out for sets and things coming in. But the performance part, I think it is because you're just around these people that have done it. And then the next group of people come in and they just kind of embodying 
embody it by watching. But if you're going to say, watch this video and do that, it's not the same. Yeah, there's, there's, um, they knew, they knew how to orchestrate that, you know, and I think you mentioned it earlier about how protective Bluebell was of dancers, you know, I think that was part of it is she didn't want people to see behind the curtain, you know, even throughout the run of Jubilee, you know, in, in the, in the days when I was, you know, in the 2000s, when I was in Las Vegas, um, they did a backstage tour, but you never really, and they did all kinds of press things where you'd go, but you really never got to see um, too much behind the curtain. They were very protective of that sort of thing. And other shows have done that. You know, when I worked for um, Phantom, which is a, a massive institution, uh, that we were very careful not to let people too far behind the curtain. And so they're sort of creating this beautiful aesthetic and they don't want to puncture it, you know? Um, which I, I totally understand. And she, she was very protective of that, I'm sure, from everything I've read. And, you know, I've never met either of them, but everything I've read about them, they, they were very smart in the way these, these shows were constructed and, and the way uh, they were directed and, and choreographed. Um, and, and, it, and, you know, it, when you talk about the walk, um, what is that walk really about? You know, you might look at it on the surface and it maybe, it maybe looks like it's, it's sexualized because it's moving the hips and everything. It's really about ease. It's really about taking that beautiful costume that exaggerates the female form and makes it the most glamorous woman you've ever seen. But how do you make that look easy? And I think when you see other people copying the, the choreography or those type of costumes, it looks labored and straight. Right. Yeah. And that it never looked that way. I mean, you watch these tapes or these, um, or watching, you know, when I saw Jubilee Live, it, it always looked like it was just effortless and they were just gliding down those stairs. Well, you know, I remember going backstage once and walking five steps up that finale staircase and being like, oh my God, this is work. And right. I'm wearing, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. Um, yeah. And I'm not a dancer, certainly, but, you know, you look at that and you see, uh, this is incredibly difficult, you know, and coming from theater, you know, it's the same thing. When you see, a, um, you know, someone doing Anything Goes or 42nd Street, the principal dancer, and it's a seven minute tap number, and they don't look out of breath, and they're singing these lyrics, and they look great, and then they, you know, they go backstage and they collapse <laughs> and have right. to drink it down the water. But from, the, from a distance, it looks effortless, and they knew how to make that happen. It's so interesting. That's, yeah, that's such a beautiful con contrast and sad contrast where now we know every celebrity's where they grocery shop. We know everything or that golden era of, I mean, you did know people's, you know, romantic escapades and all that, but I feel like we love to pull the curtain back and expose that everything is a fraud or a fake or we want to put people on the pedestal and then we love to tear them down. Where yeah. I think to keep that, that, illusion with it but it's not fake when those people are on stage they are embodying that but the desire now is like we'd want to like go backstage and expose all the flaws yeah i remember working at, in vegas you know uh when we when, i remember when i started in rock of ages um by that point social media was something we had to contend with to promote the show and sell the show and i remember sitting in meetings with press all the time and you know, the company managers, we'd be the people at the table that would be saying, well, no, we don't want to do videos in the dressing room. And like, uh, it's one thing to sort of have like, oh, maybe a press person gets in costume or gets to experience something in the day of, but it was tightly controlled. And we would only yeah. perform on our stage with our lighting and our costumes, because we knew you take that costume and that wig and you put it in daylight, it doesn't look good, you know? And so we were always protecting that image. And I, I certainly see that of their style of show and people like Fluff and sort of her deputies around the world were making sure that that was, that was the case. You know, nowadays, 
it's very hard to do that because of social media. Everyone wants to promote things sort of behind the scenes. And, and I, I, I appreciate the creative work that they did to make this illusion. It really is, it's a magician's illusion, you know? Uh, no one looks that great <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you, you can only look that good for, you know, a, a 90 minute show, you know? So, and move that effortlessly and do all those things in a controlled environment. So I appreciate what goes on behind the scenes and I don't, I don't want to see all the backstage. I don't want to, to you know, it's like learning the trick that, a, that an illusion does, you know? So when you picture this musical, do you see it in your head? Like what the aesthetics are or the flow? I do. What I does do. it I look see, like to you? I see it actually as non-linear, meaning that the story that we actually start at the very end of the play. And then we kind of time travel back in time and start from her beginnings, her first audition, uh, in, in the UK, uh, her joining uh, the Alfred Jackson Girls, which was the dance troupe that she joined in the 1930s that was very well known. They were sort of in the tradition of the Tillers, Tiller lines and the Rockettes and all those um, precision dance teams, not really like the style of, of dancing that the, the um, you know, the, the Jubilee, st the Art and Bluebell style that sort of is sort of changed to, it was really precision, sort of almost military kind of dancing. Yeah. And um, so that whole era and then, and then, you know, being swept away to Paris and joining the Folie Berger, that whole, her first successes, then re really being dampered by World War II and that horrible period in her life, uh, which was horrible, but she also met her husband and married him right before the war started, had four children during the course of the war. I think maybe two or three of them were during the course of the war, but she oh, had, wow. you know, those were her childbearing years was during World War II. And most of the time her husband was away. He was either in turn uh, or in a concentration camp in France or, um, uh, or being hidden in an apartment in Paris when the city was being occupied by the Nazis. So a lot of people don't know about that history. It's fascinating. Um, and at the same time, you know, um, there, uh, late, during that period, it's very strange the city sort of closed down at first when the Nazis came and then it reopened and then it closed. So at various points in time, she had to take other jobs, um, uh, organizing dancers for nightclubs. At one point there was a nightclub that called the Chantilly, I believe, that was sort of well known for, um, for black marketers to meet. Meaning that you would, if you were in the French resistance, you might go there and meet someone else that was selling you guns from the UK, or they might um, go there and buy meat because meat was being rationed or bread or things like that. And all the while she she's, has a, a small troop of girls dancing on the stage. And in fact, they were raided several times by the Nazis um, while she was there. Um, so she, I mean, really, I don't know if she really talked about that history, but it's in the book and she talks about it in some of the interviews, but it's, um, it's a real fascinating history. And I have to say there's another, um, there's a, a showgirl that was a principal dancer for the Folie Berger at that time and um, was also a French resistance fighter. And her name was Lydia Lova. And there's a book about her called The Naked Heroine. Um, and that was at the, she was a contemporary of Bluebells during the war. And I, she must have known her because they must have crossed paths. Although I think they may, they may have missed each other when she was in charge of the, of the Folie Berger. I think Lydia came in after Bluebell had left maybe, but they must have known each other because that must have been a small world, you know, that Parisian showgirl world, you know? Yeah. I heard, um, and I don't know if it's true, because sometimes like you get bits and pieces that there were other dancers also that had boyfriends or husbands or fiancés that they were hiding. And I don't know if you've come across that. I don't know where I heard that, that's if it's even true. Specific things, but I also think they would have hidden that history. Yeah. You know? I know yeah. that there were some dancers that, um, 
for instance, started dating uh, Nazi soldiers. And that sure. became very difficult. Um, uh, and again, I don't know if these were specifically bluebells or they worked in other troops, but there are several books about nightlife during the occupation of Paris. And they talk about these stories, um, but they don't specifically reference them as being spe specifically bluebell dancers. But there were, um, there were women, remember this was an international troop. So there were some women that were, uh, most of them were, were British, but some were from other countries. And so some of them were trapped in Paris, depending on what time they left. You know, some, some of the dancers, you know, they, they pretty much shut down the, the dance troops pretty early and she sent all her international girls home. But some of them were married or were, um, had uh, boyfriends or they didn't want to leave. And so they stayed and it did not work out well for them. In fact, um, Bluebell herself, she had the opportunity to leave and go back to Great Britain, but she was married. Her husband, um, she was not actually, um, it was tricky. Her, um, her citizenship was tricky. And that's why she ended up being interred was because she actually had, um, and I'm, I'm, I can't remember the exact terminology, but she had a British passport, but she was actually born in Ireland, which Ireland was a neutral country during the war. Yeah. So um, they arrested her as an enemy of the Germans because she was British, but she said, no, I'm, I'm actually Irish. And I was born in Ireland. I just lived in, in Great Britain. I have a passport there because I grew up there. And so she was interred for the time that it took for them to get the per paperwork from Ireland. Um, so there's that tricky history. That's why she was, and she was, by the way, she was pregnant at the time in a, in a camp for women that the Nazis were running. I mean, just incredibly oh it, during the holidays. And at the same time, her husband was being taken to a Nazi camp. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. The book, if you haven't read it, George Perry wrote it, you can find it on eBay. There's several other books that she's interviewed in and she talks about a little bit of her history. There's one called The Follies Brigere by Charles Castle. If you're interested in a good read during yeah. the pandemic, that's one. Uh, and then there's another book, I actually have it here. It's called Folly Brigere and it's by Paul Derval. Paul Derval was the manager of the Folly Brigere during its heyday, which was before the war. Um, and he wrote this, it's a very old book. You can type off this on eBay. And um, it has uh, extensive interviews with Bluebell because Bluebell before being involved with the Lido, you know, she wasn't involved with the Lido until I think the late fifties. She was exclusively at Folly Brigere. And then she also ran other troops for, um, there was some theaters that were run by the, by Paramount that were the Paramount cinemas. And they had similar like um, uh, kind of what Radio City Music Hall did in the thirties and forties they had a pre kind of pre-show before the movie. So they might show, you know, Camille and they would have like a 15 minute line of dancers that would entertain people between the movie shows. And so she did that and those were actually, that's really when she invented the showgirls. She really, that's when the showgirls became tall because it was her idea to set them apart from other troops. And that's when the, the line of dancers became massive because they had a massive stage to fill. And so it became a line of, 24 dancers instead of 12, which was originally what you would have seen at places like the Falling Brigier. Anyway, I'm babbling. <laughs> no, that's so, this is so good because I've gotten bits and pieces. I did read the, the George Perry one, but I think it's what you're doing is you're taking all these things and putting it into something that we can see a little more uh, as a bigger picture instead of like a bit, bit and piece here. Because even the, a lot of the interviews I've done, the stories are girls that loved ballet and they were six feet tall at 14 years old. So the whole thing, if it wasn't for bluebells, cause we can say, well, it's exclusive cause you had to be tall. Like, well, 
everything else in the dance world excluded them. So yeah. by Bluebell having that, you know, the long legs, and that's actually like the ballerina body that was not the ballerina body. So they got to have that technique and be celebrated for being tall. And if you're wearing these giant costumes, you, a five foot two person would just be swallowed up in there. So well, because of like that, that length of the, you know, top to bottom of the stage and you would look like tiny little people on there if you weren't six foot tall. Yeah. And she, you know, when you think about how she created those jobs for women at that time and also ran her own corporation, yeah. you know, they worked for her. She hired them specifically and they were an international corporation because they were casting all over the place. Um, but she, she really made opportunities for women in dance that didn't exist before, or at least not at that scale. Um, yeah, they, they may not have had a career, but also some of these women, she not only gave them a career, but they saw the world, you know, early on when she was dancing with, for the Alpha Jackson girls, the dream was to dance for a few years and find a husband and then get married and be a housewife. Yeah. And she really changed that. She made these women independent, certainly, you know, gave them careers that made them financially independent, but they also saw the world. I mean, how many dancers do we know that were British or Australian or American that are yeah. in other countries that settled in other countries and, you know, uh, made, uh, created families or careers or they were lawyers and real estate agents. And, you know, living in Las Vegas, you can't, um, you can't live there for too long without meeting uh, somebody in, in, whether it's in the entertainment industry in, in different fields or in, uh, in many fields. And you can always tell a bluebell because they have that, stri that strict posture and they sort of went through that etiquette school of being yeah. a bluebell. You know, they, they really understand how they're seen and how they're interpreted by the world and carry themselves with a grace and elegance that I don't think, um, you know, we certainly in 2020 don't have. <laughs> right. We're all slouching with Zoom neck right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, uh, I just like, what a badass, because I'm just thinking like, even if that was the 80s, like I knew her, at, you know, I think she, she was maybe in her 70s or so when I met her, but just that for a woman to even have that much influence and power in the 80s, but she, this is back in the 30s where women, like that must have been a really rare thing for her to have her own business and run it and be that successful. If you look at it in the times that that was happening, that's even more amazing. She was running the empire out of her apartment. She had a former dancer that I think was her assistant or secretary. Her husband eventually um, uh, took over a lot of the financial stuff, but it was basically a family run business. And she was at the, the Lido every night from what I can tell in the book. And um, she, she was casting shows all over the world. I mean, we talk about the permanent, what we would call resident shows, you know, nowadays we call it, you know, with Cirque, we call them as resident shows that they were in, spe in specific cities. They sat down in specific cities, but they had tours all over the world. She had shows at, um, uh, I forget where, uh, where in Spain, but um, uh, the Scala in Spain. Yeah, the Scala. There. They had shows that toured all over Asia. South America was huge. You know, there was resorts all over South America and touring shows in South America. I mean, and a lot of those, that history is gone because those shows didn't run as long because they were, they were temporary tours. But um, uh, yeah, it, 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 the empire stretched all around the world. You know, like I said, by the time the book was written in the mid eighties, it was like 14,000 women had danced for her. I, I, I say women, I, I mean, because uh, uh, women and men, uh, the yeah. show boys, the, I think that at one point they called them the Kelly boys. And a lot yeah. of people also don't realize that she helped with a lot of shows uh, she hired the dancers for a lot of shows that maybe she wasn't necessarily, um, that they weren't necessarily called bluebells. She was contractually, um, she could only call certain lines of dancers bluebells. I think the Lido had the, the bluebell name 
as oh, contractually yeah, yeah. they could advertise that the Bluebells were at the Lido, but she also organized dancers for other um, Casino de Paris. Um, uh, I think the Moulin Rouge for a period of time. Yeah, for a while she, yeah. Um, a lot of other places. There was other theaters that existed that we don't remember anymore, but that were, that had a long history there, nightclubs, um, all kinds of places that where the blue, where the Bluebells danced, they were just called something else. Sometimes they were called the Kelly girls or the Kelly boys or um, different, um, they were called different things. I am so excited for you to do this. And I think everyone listening, like I'm like so excited and I'm hopeful. Like I feel like we had the Hello Hollywood Hello reunion two years ago and they were showing slides from, you know, the 11 year run of the show. And it was so fun to see like your picture or your group or your friends. And then like most of the pictures, I don't know, cause that ran so long. And even with 150 in the cast, when I was in it, cause I was the early part before it kind of scaled down that we didn't even know half the people in the show because you never <laughs> ran into them. But, but there was this thing of feeling so connected, but watching these photos, there was a picture of Bluebell and I think it has a, there was a picture of her gravesite. Mm -hmm. All of us were crying. And I really only had my one interaction. I was telling you before, I'm crying in her arms in her hotel room when I wasn't going to take the show. Um, but we, I don't think a lot of us could even put into words of why we were so touched by that. A lot of it was we have our career because of her. But it felt like it's, I did a lot of shows outside of Bluebell. I did, you know, I went to Bermuda. I did cruise ships. That was all fun. But this was something, being there and just, just seeing her impact for on so many of us, maybe not even knowing the only, I only knew parts of the picture until recently. So the research that you're doing, I think is a gift to all of us um, to understand what we were part of and the beauty of her and what she contributed for women, for men, for the arts. And I would, I would love if you, I'd love that you gave us book titles and I know you've done your research because you have to work to find this. This isn't just like, you know, Google Bluebell and you're going to get everything you had to, really do some creative like to go to the museum and i know there's a, a museum there's a las vegas museum showgirl stuff reno karen burns has a costume museum that people are really more intentional preserving this but it's far and few i would encourage all bluebells to take a look at um the university of nevada las vegas look at their website there they have a fantastic collection of both don arden and um bluebell papers and photographs a lot of it is digitized and online. If you're in Las Vegas, make an appointment there. I, I went there several times and the staff there is fantastic. They're, they're very much fans of the art form and they're trying to preserve it. They, um, they, would, let, uh, they would let me make an appointment and I, I, you could watch VHS tapes of, of some of the stuff that, you know, they have the original Jubilee, you know, on VHS tapes. And one thing I will say is that, um, a lot of the stuff exists on YouTube or you can find, for instance, Hello Hollywood Hello and uh, Hollywood Hollywood were, were recorded. But Jubilee, I've never seen um, a, a taped version of the show that's very good. The one at the, in the collection is on a VHS and it's very degraded and it makes me sad because that original version of the show um, that before they changed it in the 90s, I don't know if anyone has that. Maybe the hotel has that. But as you know, I worked with hotel corporations for years. They don't really care about the history of these shows. So I'm hoping that that legacy lives on because now that these shows are closed, the only thing we can show to young dancers or creative people to reference these things is, is video and photographs, you know? And we have the photographs. Um, I'm hoping like, you know, for a show that ran for so long for there not to be really good continuous coverage of the video is a little bit unnerving. 
you know, and, yeah. and as a historian, I'm a little worried about that. You know, I know, for instance, when I worked on Phantom for years, we had archival videos that, you know, our original stage manager has somewhere and he's keeping, uh, even if they're not public because they can't be, you know, because of copyright and stuff, at least someone's taking care of them um, and, pass, and can pass those on at some point in the future because that's the way these things are all on YouTube. You know, if you look at like the Lido, you can see almost every version of the Lido from the 60s on, on YouTube, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm hoping that um, that people continue that legacy. You know, I'm a I, I collect the programs. They're on eBay because in the programs you can see how many people were in the cast, what was the order of the acts, um, how the shows were laid out, what were some of the things. You know, because I'm um, I'm interested in it for my research. You know, um, and if anyone is a fantastic playwright that's interested in this, reach out to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like how you find those people that are going to hold that integrity and stay with your vision and the songwriter. And I think the more we're kind of networking with this we're we're finding there's way more resources when we all pool it there's Lindsay raven on she's in the first episode of, of uh, showbiz, showbiz friends that is they're updating it too it's a website where a, a lot of us who are in shows right right post video i don't know if there's many videos i know there's photos but it, it might be a good resource thing that maybe people will start adding more to it so that you don't have to go to 12 places to well, find remember, these things i remember doing research and wanting to find for instance the the BBC miniseries of, of Blue Velvet based on the book, very hard to find. I reached out to somebody in Australia who had a DVD. He was nice enough, this gentleman, this older gentleman, to burn it for me. I mean, this is how much people love this legacy. He burned yeah. it for me and mailed it to me from Australia. Same thing, you know, uh, there's so many stories like that I have about, you know, I know a gentleman in Las Vegas that has, um, he just collects like videos of stuff and he, he, he has clips and he has, uh, um, some bootleg audio recordings of some of the stuff so you can really hear what the orchestration was, you know, what the music sounded like. Yeah. Because in the video, sometimes the quality is really poor. So there are people that are trying to keep that legacy alive, but you have to, you have to really find it. And like all the books, they're all out of print. They're, you have to find them on YouTube sometimes, or on um, eBay, sometimes they're expensive. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, finding that legacy. Some of them are in French and I have to, I don't know French and I have to try <laughs> yeah. to figure them There's out. There's a, a gal I just video. interviewed, Nat Guyon, who's in Lyon, Paris. She was a translator. She was translating from French into English and the other way around for a uh, script writer. So she's good at that. So we might have all of the, a lot of resources right here. Yeah. I yeah. found Hello Hollywood Hello, not the one, I think it's different than the one that's on YouTube. It's 1984. It's when the Furcos were in there, which I was before that. So I was like, what happened here? Where's our tiller line? But it's through, it's in Reno. It's like, um, I can, I, I've tagged people in there, but it's like film something and you can get it. It's like, definitely like someone just taped it on their DVD player and it's right. okay quality. But what I will do is I put it on my TV and I'll take a video with my camera. So it's really crappy and you can usually see like my dog shadow walk by, <laughs> but I've been posting it on the Bluebells Forever um, on my podcast Facebook thing that also there's a bunch of there's Bluebells groups on Facebook. There's a reunion Bluebells one. There's a Jubilee Facebook group. There's a Hello Hollywood. I know there's more. So when I post it, everybody gets so excited. Like I heard that music and I started to remember the choreography. And so they were asking for more. And so I'm like, I'm doing really crappy recordings. So we have something, but I've been giving them the link. Like there's this, and I know someone's got an older version. So like, who has that? Who can let us know how to get a hold of it? Because yeah. I think there's a thing, like I was telling you, I'm putting together like a Parisian cabaret show and the podcast, it just feels like it's time. There's things that like, yeah, I'm going to do that one day. And, and with COVID and everything else of this, wanting to connect it's just like it's time it's time for these stories to be told and you know hearing all the perspectives from like 
you know, I've, I've got a couple 80 year olds I've interviewed and then some of the new ones They're the stories are different, but similar. And I think we're all loving to hear all the perspectives and the things that are similar. Like I never heard that piece before. I didn't know, you know, that, that there, this was option for travel or that. Yeah. I just think there's so many beautiful parts that what you're doing is putting into one place where we can see a bigger picture. I hope so. I hope so. And, and, you know, I've, I've enjoyed it so much, you know, the other thing I have to say is if, if you're, if you visit Las Vegas, you know, once all this is over, there's um, uh, Karen Fetter from the Nevada State Museum has a collection. She has some pieces from Jubilee, but they also have archives. I, you know, I was lucky enough to get to know her because when I was working in entertainment, we would close shows and oftentimes she'd pick some stuff to donate uh, to her, her collection of, of some costumes and things like that. Uh, and then there's also, you know, if you've never been to the Neon Museum, there's the original marquee sign that says Lido. Um, oh. in their, in their um, Boneyard collection. And I think they have other pieces too that are not I've seen the display. picture of that. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't just toss all that stuff. So there's all these bits and pieces of things, of artifacts and, and uh, history and stuff. It's just sort of piecing it all together. And that's really the project that I'm doing is sort of putting it all together so that once, you know, we, we do start writing something and getting it down, putting pen and paper, we have it all. You know, one of the things I did was I made a timeline of her whole life from, you know, uh, I think 1912, she was born or something like that. Uh, and and it, it's all the events in her life, so you can see on a timeline all the locations, all the names, you know who was involved. Um, and really, what I found the most fascinating thing, and really for me as a director, which is like the visual concept for the show, is how it builds. How she goes in that first scene in the book where she's auditioning with her best friend, um, and they both get cast in the Alfred Jackson Girls. It's really her and the friend, and then they go to the Jackson Girls, and it's a small line of dance, precision dancers. And then it just builds, her career builds and builds and builds. And really the end of the show for me is the opening of Jubilee where she has a cast of 135. And it's, it's one of the, you know, and like the, all the American shows, especially Hollywood, Hello Hollywood, Hello, it's, they're the largest shows in America and they're mass, on these massive stages and how she sort of built that empire up from really nothing, you know, um, you know from her apartment. So yeah. it, it, that's really the fascinating story. And, and then uh, that's really the concept of the show. So, uh, you know, I see it, even though it's not written yet, I see all the scenes yeah. and I see it, uh, I see it taking place on this massive staircase that shifts and turns and we see behind and in front of, and again, the juxtaposition of the artifice that they're creating. And then what's going on behind the scenes? What's really, what are they really toiling to do? Whether it's during World War II or whether they're surviving the MGM fire and rebuilding the show so that we can open and present our, our, our work of art and employ all these hundreds of people, you know? Yeah. It's, I'm it's so, this has been so fascinating. I think for a lot of people, they've wanted to know the history. And so this is going to be a gift. And it's really interesting that it's coming from a director's point. Of, I keep saying that a director's point of view, because we see what we see as dancers, but you're seeing, the longevity you're seeing this whole how parts move and how stories are told and so as we close because we have to eventually um is there something that you when people see the show that you would like them to leave with like their experience um i would like them to know the incredible strength of this woman how she, the things that she endured that we know and some that we don't know you know there's 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 still a lot of history that i don't quite understand about you know her family history Marcel, the husband, his passing, um, just how, and how ahead of her time she was. I know, I don't know if she would admit to this at the time, but she was, she was really a feminist and broke a lot of, um, a lot of the glass ceilings that existed for dancers at that time. 
And I don't know if she would have even, she even knew she was doing that. I think she was just interested in working in the work and being creative in hiring the best dancers, doing the best work she could um, and making everything better, you know? And she, and I think part of that was her sort of, she had a sort of military like precision to what she did and she, because she had to, because it was such a massive operation. So I think I, I really want people to see the mountains that she climbed to get to where she was um, by the time she passed away. And, um, and the, and also the legacy, I mean, all the bluebells know it because they go to these reunions. I'm sure you see the legacy of what these women, uh, they took that bluebell time and they took it with them all around the world to every field and every family and to different countries all around the world. And that's, what's interesting to me. You know, I, I I'm a huge fan of musicals and to me, she's the, you know, the gypsy name, Hello Dolly. She's that kind of archetype in musical theater. She's this incredibly strong woman that everyone's looking to and that leads, you know? And so um, I don't know if there's other people like that, you know, even in theater now, she, uh, people don't know the legacy of Don Arden. And, you know, I, used, I would taught directing in my, when I was at, in graduate school uh, for beginners and we had a project that we did and it was on uh, famous directors. And I had a list of maybe 30 directors, mostly Broadway directors, people like, you know, Bob Fosse or, you know, all these different directors. And I would always put Don Arden on there. And, um, and a, lot of the, um, a lot of the students would be like, well, who's Don Arden? I never heard of that. I'm like, well, you need to look into it because he, was, he, he produced um, shows in Paris and Las Vegas and all over the world and uh, directed them, I should say. And uh, he created this style of entertainment that is no longer around, but um, was really effective. It was really effective obviously financially, commercially, they were incredibly successful in the shows, but also the fact that you could entertain people in any language from all over the world, people that walked in off the casino floor and you could tell these stories, a biblical story and the story of the Titanic and the story of the Hindenburg disaster and the story, you know, and, uh, and do it all through movement and dance and costumes and, and scenery is incredible. It's in, and it's, it's what we want to see right now. You know, you think about yeah. how difficult this period of time is during COVID and we probably all miss seeing dance and theater and um, music and all that kind of stuff. To go to sit in the theater and see, really see a spectacle dazzle us, um, something really positive. It's not political. There's no, there's no real um, heavy uh, message to it. It's really about um, the human spirit and how we can create the most beautiful things and using color and light and glitter to, to dazzle us, you know, and, and I think we need that. I, I, the last few interviews I've done, I'm kind of speechless at the end. So I don't feel like I need to have like a button or like, and this is how everything is just that we'll just leave it with there. I've got goosebumps and it just, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I just know it's going to be a gift to, all of the dancers, the stage crew, dressers, costumers that were part of that, just to feel uh, how honoring you're doing this. So uh, we will be watching and maybe we will be able to find those people that you need to make this happen. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for what you're doing. You know, I'm, I'm new to the podcast. I'm on the fourth episode and I'm riveted by it. It's just uh, what you're doing is so important and what all the Bluebells do from the ones that organize, you know, Showbiz Friends and all these groups because you're keeping that legacy alive for, for younger people to, to, to know it, to learn it, and to maybe reinterpret it. Maybe there's a, a way that there's a new version of the showgirl that takes on that legacy and, and updates it for, for 2020. I hope to see that you know, in, in coming years as we get, we get out of the pandemic. So I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, I've met a lot of Bluebells and hello to all of them. You know, a lot of Yay. them I've worked with on the strip. A lot of uh, 
dressers and, and stagehands and all that. So I hope they're listening because this is a great podcast. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Christopher. Take care of yourself. And I will be watching and following you and seeing where this goes. I'm excited for you and for us too. Thank you. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. Bye. Bye.